Ferrari, on the other hand, it's one of the strangest. I, I don't know why the movie looks the way it does. Even, like, not even. I mean, it's just like kind of Euro sludge, but occasionally it looks really good. The racing scenes look great. I'm sure. Got perplexing movie. It's not even worth talking about until you see it. Yeah, you but I'm like, not say I'm anything. not, I'm not convinced an Italian was even in the film, which is funny. Yeah. It's good. They shot it it's, there, you know. It, yeah, yeah. No, I know. It's just like <laughs> it's because of I'm singling out the like four main actors giving like the, the strangest yeah. performances of all time. That it, goes of this week, but yeah, totally. yeah, yeah. It, with the exception of Penelope Cruz, like she's great. Um, yeah, weird movie. And then Godzilla is just Godzilla. Everybody, I don't know. It's good. It's fine. It's Godzilla. It's crack. It's really high. Yeah. So, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andrew Stasulis, and I am joined here with... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic or a theme for the week. It's always changing. It's always shifting. It's always evolving, revolving. And the other two are tasked with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, uh, struggle with the topic, fight the topic, all kinds of things. It was my turn to pick this week the the theme the the challenge throw down the gauntlet to the boys and uh as i mentioned previously uh, i'm putting together a class at the university at which i teach on spaghetti westerns and so going back and and looking at the peculiarities of the italian cinema in the 60s you you notice a lot of people uh, realizing what a bonanza it could be for for actors, especially in Hollywood, who maybe were past their prime or or struggling financially or just looking for a change of pace to to suddenly like pop up in a spaghetti western or some other Italian genre film, and it just got me like amused. I watched uh, Te Peppa recently, where the one and only Orson Welles plays a, a corrupt Mexican police chief during the Mexican Revolution. Uh, so very large in that one. Very large, very large and in charge in that, you know, but it got me just sort of like amused by the idea of, of thinking of actors stepping outside their comfort zone, perhaps, or what they might be used to normally. And obviously Orson did a lot of that later on in his career for money. So I tasked the boys with bringing me films that feature an actor uh, uh, a little bit sort of at sea, perhaps, in their role, doing something that they wouldn't normally do, stretching their wings, giving something... Uh, different a try. And 
I would say we sort of got that this week. Uh, I'm going to reserve some of my my comments on one of the films a, a bit later, but but we definitely did get actors, I would say, outside of their comfort zone. Uh, and uh, we have a very interesting double feature for, <laughs> for the listeners this week. So without further ado, we should just bring the films out. Normally, we like to start with the earlier produced film, and this week will be no different. So, <laughs> Marsh, why don't you tell us what you brought this week? Sure thing. Uh, well, it was interesting. I feel like this week I sort of chose Ryan's movie and he sort of chose my <laughs> yeah, movie. That's what I was going to say. I think that's kind of what <laughs> happened. Um, so I almost feel weird, like I'm going first, but I felt like I picked the other film in a certain way. Uh, and I'm sure you feel that way. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. um, yeah, so we were like, you know, I had a list and we were texting and, and I had some good ideas and he said to me, uh. Well, I'm surprised you aren't doing this, you know? And I was like, oh, how could I forget? I'm doing that. You know, it was like <laughs> definitely that situation. And uh, this is a film that I saw a long time ago. I saw it in undergrad in a, in a class I was in, of all things. Uh, and it's a film that was in many ways sort of widely mocked for its central casting choice. And that choice, of course, is Keanu Reeves as Siddhartha in <laughs> Little Buddha from 1993, directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. Little Buddha is a strange film in many ways, and especially in the context of the career of its filmmaker, Bernardo Bertolucci. Many of the reviews at the time say something like the following. I thought this guy was all about Marx and Freud. What's going on here? <laughs> And yes, uh, this is, is not really that. So uh, in the 1980s, Bertolucci uh, sort of left Italy. He got sick of, you know, corrupt Italian politics and the shallowness of the 80s economic boom. And he set off with producer Jeremy Thomas to ultimately make a trilogy of international co-productions, which began with The Last Emperor, went to The Sheltering Sky, and then finally to Little Buddha. Some people call this his Eastern trilogy, although is North Africa Eastern? Not really sure about that, but uh, anyway. East of Hollywood anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, so yes, Little Buddha is another international co-production. Uh, it was produced by, of all people, Miramax, but as well as Recorded Picture Company, the Jeremy Thomas uh, outfit. And I was reading a little more about Thomas, fascinating figure, by the way. He's still active. I was going to say, like, we don't have producers like this anymore, but he's still active. But in the 1980s, he produced Skolomovsky, Rogue, Cronenberg. Uh, I mean, this guy was like the real deal in finding money for auteurs. And, uh, of course, Berlucci married... Uh, an English writer, uh, and so he got this this sort of like British super producer to make his epic fantasies come true. And so Little Buddha is uh, sort of the dual story uh, of both, on one level, it's like a child's fable about the story of Siddhartha, and uh, it's also about some uh, Tibetan monks who are looking for the reincarnation of 
Lama Dorje, their former master who passed away nine years ago. And this takes them to Seattle, of all places, right? And Ryan, I can't wait to get your take on the Seattle yeah. of Little Huda. I got Huda. things to say, yeah. <laughs> I remembered very vividly, you know, seeing this film 20 years ago and just being like, wow, Bertolucci, like, hates Seattle. It's so blue <laughs> and lifeless and alienated, you know? Um, but we'll get to that. And so, yes, these Tibetan monks, like, go all the way to Seattle, and they approach this family, uh, Chris Isaac and Bridget Fonda and their son. Uh, and they're like, yeah, we think uh, your son may be the reincarnation of our master. Uh, and they are sort of like, you know, oddly kind of entertaining this uh, for a while. Uh, and yes, yeah, so then like the, the two stories get folded together where the child uh, Jesse is learning about the story of Siddhartha. Uh, there's some drama going on with the family and this ultimately sends the father and son to Bhutan. Uh, and wow, a lot happens, you know, uh, including the entire story of Siddhartha becoming Buddha and the Enlightenment and battling demons. And yes, it is Keanu Reeves, right? Um, I don't know how much more I want to say. I, I, I guess I'll add, of course, like you would imagine in this sort of Bertolucci international co-production, it has a a lot of talent attached to it. Rudy Wurlitzer and Mark Peplow on the script. It's got cinematography by, as always, Vittorio Storaro, shooting in both 65mm Todd AO scope and 35mm Technovision anamorphic. Uh, music by Ruichi Sakamoto. Uh, it's got it all, folks. And uh, it was uh, not really a success. And it was mixed critically. And yeah, it just remains this oddity, you know, it's kind of a punchline. Oh, Keanu Reeves is Buddha. We'll get into the reasons why he played Buddha, but um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's like a fascinating film. I don't think it's like wholly successful, but uh, it's sort of like lived up to my memory of being like, you know what, this, like, this movie's not a joke. It's very interesting. And uh, we'll get into whether, you know, Bernardo has uh, sort of, uh, given up on his, uh, you know, politics or not by the 1990s. I think that's a an interesting discussion to be had, sort of the relationship uh, between Buddhism and these sort of other things he was interested in. But yeah, we'll get into it. That is Little Buddha from 1993. Thank you, Marsh. Speaking of oddities... Ryan, why don't you tell us about the movie that you brought to the podcast? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, as, I, as Marsh said... He kind of pointed me in the direction of this film. I was really having a hard time because it's a kind of a difficult thing to, to search for. And I was trying to think of different actors that had certain personas. And then so I was like, okay, let me look at their filmography. What kind of weird stuff comes up? The, my biggest disappointment on my journey was there's a Buster Keaton film from the 60s that's in Mexico. And the film is in Spanish. And it looks so cursed. It's this weird sci-fi comedy. And the only copy I could get a hold of was the version that was like 20 minutes shorter and dubbed in English. And it just seemed joyless to, to watch it that way. So I thought, forget it. But I, man, that I feel like would have been, would have been so funny. It looks so strange. It's funny that you bring that up because I was thinking of, uh, you know, through my own, you know, like in my head of Buster Keaton's one-time collaboration with Samuel yeah. Beckett. Uh, film. Yeah, right? film. 
which mm, yeah. uh, was, was very, very, uh, a very uncomfortable experience for him, Buster Keaton, from what I imagine. Equally cursed, but uh, much, much shorter. It's like a, I think like a 20 minute film or something yeah, like that. Yeah, sure. But I was really itching to find something where I like the idea of the actors abroad. Because I feel like I've just seen it all the time and I was drawing a blank on what to come up with. And and Marsh was trying to pick this Yugoslavian war film with with Orson Welles. And I was like, I thought for sure you'd be doing Little Buddha. And he was like, oh, shit. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that one. Um, and Marsh was the one who texted me saying, you should pick that Josh Hartnett Vietnam movie. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and when I looked it up and saw what it was... I was like, wow, I had no idea this existed. No one does, apparently. It, no one does. And the filmmaker, though, back in the news, Tron on Hung, I've seen some of his movies before. And he's his latest, the, the Taste of Things, is getting wide acclaim. I've heard from people who've seen it that it's great. He's uh, It's another French chef movie, a la Wiseman. I was joking, yeah. dude. I was joking on Twitter that him and Wiseman are competing for Iron Chef France this year. Yeah. You know? <laughs> It's true. It's true. So yeah, before he did that, and after he did his own trilogy in the '90s into the 2000s, there's some interesting like career similarities here. He he had um, well then he made this movie. Let me introduce this film before I talk a little bit about him. Uh, he he made in 2009 uh, a big co-production as well, uh, primarily set in Hong Kong, called "I Come with the Rain," starring Josh Hartnett. Now, when Marsh introduced the film to me, the main thing that I found really appealing was like, okay, ooh, it's this like gritty 2009 neo-noir. And I saw some of the things that were involved with it. I saw that the score, like Radiohead did some of the music and that it had all this like post-rock music in it. And it was only after the fact that I saw that there was some Godspeed, You Black Emperor heavily featured in the film. And that was really cool because I've like recently just even been on a kick. They've been like back in my rotation. So it was like nice to sit with them for a little bit. But... Boy, oh boy, how to describe this strange oddity of a film. I mean, I think it helps to know a little bit about the filmmaker. So Hung was, uh, he was born in Vietnam, and then in the fall of Saigon, he moved to France, so at like the age of 12. So he grew up um, and was educated in the in the French film industry. And his, his first few features, I know like Scent of Green Papaya was his like breakout debut is a Vietnamese film, but shot on a French film studio. And then he did like two more Vietnam-focused films, one of which I've seen called Cyclo, that I think is really cool. And that one's got like this crazy aesthetic to it that does actually feel more in line with I Come With The Rain, where his style was shifting while Scent of Green Papaya is known as, you know, it's like very warm in the countryside, very gorgeous. Cyclo has this like kind of gritty, weird color tone edge to it of like a, a scary city. And that's certainly what I Come With The Rain kind of embodies when you think about a grungy city in the, in the aughts, you know? So this film, according to his words, was that he wanted to make a Baroque action film, which was both intense and poetic, haunted by three characters from the mythology of film and the Western world the serial killer, the private investigator, and the Christ-like figure. 
So this film really does kind of follow those three threats. We have Josh Hartnett as a private investigator who is hired by a pharma, like a boss of a pharmaceutical conglomerate to track down his only son, Shitao, who is the Christ-like figure in this film. Shitao is, for most of the film, like living in a hut uh, outside of Hong Kong, seemingly performing exorcisms or providing just some sort of healing to to a lot of people in the area and so josh hartnett goes to hong kong but while he's searching for this christ-like figure that's missing he gets uh he finds himself entangled with this other boss of like a criminal syndicate su dong po uh who his girlfriend is kidnapped and then living with the Christ-like figure and so all these threads kind of overlap in like really strange ways but throughout Josh Hartnett is also haunted by a case that he had many years ago where he was hunting a serial killer portrayed by Elias Coteus who uh, is essentially Hannibal specifically like the Mads Mikkelsen Hannibal who kills his victims eats them up and then turns them into art installations, uses their flesh to create these sculptures. I, I, I didn't like this film very much, and I did find it very fascinating. I'm very curious just to hear what your guys' reactions are pretty much at the top of this. It's, I think it's a totally interesting oddity from 2009. I see that some people really ride for it. It, it didn't fully coalesce for me. It, it, it was a really strange viewing experience. And I, I will say it's funny just comparing these two films. The last thing I'll mention that was, is a quality I liked about this movie was you, you mentioned Storaro shooting Little Buddha on 65 millimeter and, t and 35, you know, all these like top of the line stuff. And I'm watching this movie thinking like, why does this movie look the way it does? Like it's just a strange looking film. And at first I was like, how could a film shot on film look like this? I'm like, this movie looks digital. It is digital, and yep. it's kind of one of those interesting late 2000s artifacts. This film was shot on like a Panavision, an early Panavision digital camera, then printed on film, and it looks nuts. It, <laughs> it, it feels like it has the depth of field of a digital camera, but it also has this like really gritty, grainy 2000s film stock look to it. It's a curious film. Uh, and I, I feel like I'm running out of synonyms uh, for, for oddity and curious, so I think I'm going to leave it there. But that is, the, to the best of my ability, I come with the rain from 2009. Thank you, Ryan. You know, I, I knew picking this topic that, that, you know, I was sort of asking for, I don't want to say trouble. Trouble's not the right word. But I would say uh, I, I set you both down a path to bring us strange films that was yeah. the mission you know i wasn't necessarily telling you bring me something excellent you know the, the i think the way i was describing it was pushing you to find something weird something you know again that that isn't necessarily uh something you would immediately you know um hear about and go like yeah that 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 makes sense i was asking you to bring things that <laughs> that don't make sense. So, so I will say that, you know, I, I fully understood what we were, what we were getting into this week. And I would say very, 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 from my perspective in that, uh, respect, yes, 
mixed results indeed. <laughs> but that's exactly what I was was hoping for. And yeah, you know, I would just say in in response to your whole, you know, question of um you know, wondering what I thought in in in, yeah. in a nutshell about I come with the rain. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, I I did not like that movie. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I did cool. not. I did not have a good time with with that movie. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I, I'm not here to defend it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I don't see how you could. <laughs> to be honest. Well, I mean, but it's definitely I'll, I'll got. Try a lot in there to to discuss you know and i yeah I, I, I think it's like definitely a film of a real artist trying to like weird out a bit yes it is a it is a it is a a classic example of the mantra just because you can doesn't mean you should <laughs> yeah. always you know and i think that that's sort of i guess the 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 theme for both of these films but again in in with very very different sort of results because I was very familiar with Little Buddha. Uh, I I remember when the film came out, it was one that my dad rented on Laserdisc, you know, and I was a little too young, I think, when it when it popped out to to, to sort of sneak into the room to to get my eyes on it. But it was one that I always remembered in the back of my head, and I'd seen clips of it. I'd seen clips of it before because of uh, an intro to religion class we were required to take at DePaul as like freshmen, my teacher showed us clips from the movie when we were on the, the, like, you know, the module on Eastern religion and, and Buddhism specifically. So I'd already kind of seen, you know, Keanu as Buddha in a, in a brief sort <laughs> yeah. of snippet, but, but getting to watch the entire film, you know, I, I, I would say I quite enjoyed the experience overall, you know, a very different kind of view compared to I come with the rain. I see why it's a strange combination of elements, but in the case of a filmmaker like Bertolucci, you know, uh, I think even when he misses, uh, it's 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 a little bit more. There's a little bit more for me, I think, to to chew on than than I come with the rain, which I just sort of wanted to spit out. It was just a, <laughs> a it was a combination of ingredients that just did not click with my palate. You know, my takeaway. I, I I already posted about this online, so I apologize. But like, I had a really weird takeaway watching I Come With The Rain. I think, you know, I think in theory it's interesting to do a sort of experimental-ish kind of approach to this material, but I also think, like, you either need to go farther or deliver on, like, some of the goods of the genre. And, like, it just completely falls apart in terms of, like, investigation and plotting uh, it just goes in all these different directions that like really aren't satisfying aren't satisfying for an investigative type film. Um, but I I liked how fucked up and weird it looked, and I liked <laughs> how they shot Hong Kong at night. It reminded me of like Collateral, that sort of like digital grain uh, from the HD cam, two K to thirty five, like. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting, and then I was like, who shot this film? Like, why? And I found out uh, Juan Ruiz and Chia 
shot this film. And I'm going, well, that name sounds familiar. And of course it is. He shot uh, some James Foley and David Mamet films and basically the best ones, the ones in the 80s and the 90s. So he shot House of Games. He shot At Close Range. And I'm like, this guy is like an amazing cinematographer. Mm -hmm. Um, No shit, David Mamet's best films are with this guy, you know, like, because he's actually directing the light you know um so i don't know i just was like then just sort of like looking at the film as like a cinematographer's film because i i very quickly was yeah just sort of like this is the material that i should be into i love hannibal i love pi shit you know Mm -hmm. uh but yeah i mean we can get into how it sort of like deals with this um it has it has all these very like cool pieces right all the pieces are there and again you know the 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 narrative threads or the archetypes i guess in in his own sort of vision for this film that he's sort of playing with the cinematic sort of archetypes you know like yeah i love all that shit uh the music i love all that music Dude, when explosions uh, it, in the sky hits it, towards it, the end dude like. it, it looks cool but it but and and it sounds cool but it's like the way they're combined you know it's like again with a chef right you can you can put all the ingredients the finest ingredients on the table but if you don't mix them or spice them properly then there's like no cohesion you know what i mean and that's really what's going on here like this movie it 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 just it felt it was like arduous to sort of work my way through it because of the way it was put together, its construction, which is, I don't know if you mentioned in your intro, like deliberately confusing. I mean, yeah, it is. it's, it's fractured. It's kind of, I saw people like, Oh, it's this post-structuralist masterpiece. I'm like, Oh, it's just a little bit of a mess. I mean, I think you mentioning that it just totally fails on a narrative level Marsh is kind of how I reacted to it too. Cause you know me, I'm not like obsessed with a heavily plotted film, uh, per se, not that, you know, I sometimes I have a harder time keeping up with an investigation. It's one of my shortcomings. But with this thing, it's just like, come on. Like, they're just, there's so much fundamentally that is like not presented in a way that like can't, it just feels like anything's being delivered. I mean, I think it all perfectly can be encompassed with the fact that when Josh Hartnett first visits that like shack, that the guy he's looking for is living in. And he's like, oh, like, this is the jacket. Like, I think this is his jacket. X marks the spot. Like, this this must be, he's been here. He's been here. Like, I'm getting closer. And then, like, the movie keeps going. And we keep coming back to that shack. And Molly's like, what the fuck? Is he not going back? Look, to he's the, the worst private investigator. He never goes back ever... until the end of the movie. Wow, well, yeah, he well, I mean, and there is like a point to it. He's like derailed like Will Graham. He just starts like <laughs> fantasizing <laughs> about Elias Coteus when he should be tracking down Shitao. Like anyone could have tracked down Shitao. Yeah. He's I... just out there. <laughs> yeah. But no, he's like fucking losing his mind because he's thinking about all the flesh sculptures that he had to like see, you know? Yeah. Like Yeah, this is this is this is both overly plotted and like extremely empty you know yeah, it's like yeah. it, there's again so many narrative threads like my head was spinning again just in your intro where you were trying to sort of lay out the the basic sort of concept of what's yeah. going to happen in the movie again i was just like oh my god yeah all that shit is going on 
each of which could be its in, its own film. And again, yeah. like I think it's cool being ambitious and trying to sort of almost like Bertolucci bringing almost kind of like epic structure in terms of like how much is going to be packed in and all these various characters who we're going to get to know. And each of them is on their own spiritual journey in, in, in certain respects, but it's like, then they just like all aren't doing anything. They're all just fucking sitting around for half the movie and the music. Again, all this music that I love started to feel so oppressive because I felt like the music was being sort of like hammered in there to do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of like emotion or feeling or, or just like momentum. I actually had the reaction as I got towards the end of the film that I think I would have liked the movie more if none of that music that I love was actually in the film because it started to feel like a bludgeon. It was oppressive. Yeah. Speaking of bludgeoning, I was cracking up at the idea that they would go to such great pains to make this an internationally viable movie by having people speak English. And then 20 something minutes into the movie, a guy beats another man to death with a hammer that ensures that no one will see or like this film. It's so (laughs) (laughs) viscerally upsetting. I mean, it's like, well, yeah, this is a commercial international co-production. Like any normal person is walking out of the movie theater when that guy is zipped up into a body bag and beaten to a bloody pulp uh, with a hammer by (laughs) Sudong Po. I got. I gotta say, with, with that scene, one of the funniest things Molly ever said <laughs> was during that sequence when they beat that guy to death with the hammer in the bag, and it's like he zips up in the bag and he gets down on his knees, and we see Su Dong Po with the hammer, and we're like, "Oh fuck!" And then we cut back, and it's like the bag is soaked in blood. There's blood all over the floor, and Molly sees this mess, and she's like, "Man, they should have double bagged him. What's the point of putting him in the bag if it's just yeah. gonna spill all over the?" <laughs> Place. And he does fall, you know. He does yeah. slip and fall. Yeah, they should have. They should have double bagged him. I like don't understand the point of wrapping him in the bag if it was just gonna seep through like that. Well, you know? my my thought during that sequence was, how many times do you gotta hit this guy over the head with the hammer to like, you know? I would feel like once or twice he'd be out cold, you know. But the human body can be resilient. I suppose so. I figured he was like whacking him in the back and the legs and everything too to draw it out. That was my guess. Yeah. Even though he kind of like presents his head. When he gets down on his knees to be bludgeoned to death. You know, in that way, it's kind of a good metaphor for the experience of watching the film. You know, that's how I started. I felt yeah. like I was the guy in the bag by the end of the movie. <laughs> you never want to be the guy in the bag. No. <laughs> no, no. No. And I was. I was the guy in the bag, you know, what what like strands of OK computer were playing in the background. <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, who put me in this bag? What did I do? How did I get and, in here? And, and I guess, I, and I got to say, too like with all of these things we're talking about to to bring it back to the prompt it it doesn't help that i really think josh hartnett is like so bad in this movie like distractingly bad and i i think like his recent i don't know i liked him in the raul peck thing i thought it was kind of interesting like i'm not thinking back at oppenheimer dude that's right yeah he's you know he he can he can act but man in this it's it's distracting he's yeah well, you know, I think I think part of it too was 
And, you know, here's why, again, I sort of in my, in my like brief intro was like, eh, you know, very kind of mixed results, you know, because I think, you know, in the case of thinking of the topic of an actor stretching themselves, doing something that they wouldn't normally do, like going against type in a big way. I look at Josh Hartnett and I go like, what the hell is his type? Because especially to this point in his career, all the movies I'd seen with him prior to this and several after, he's kind of like a very, you know, in a lot of stuff, you know, like, I don't know. He's not that, there's nothing about Josh Hartnett where I kind of feel like I'm like, oh, he has a very recognizable persona. You know, I understand that part of his journey was he had done some, you know, he was like a handsome guy and he'd done some like, you know, romantic comedies and that sort of thing. Michael Bay. But yeah, by this point, I mean, he'd already done drama, he'd already done thrillers, and and he was always kind of Josh Hartnett. So it, it wasn't necessarily the biggest stretch. It's certainly a stretch in sense of like, he was well outside of the comfort zone of Hollywood making this film. But I think, again, that also speaks to why he sucks extra in the film, you know, because it's like he has no idea what to do. He has no idea like, you know, what he's supposed to be doing in this film, the scenes where it's just him. And as Marsh already sort of said, he's kind of going into like Will Graham mode was like embarrassingly like bad. I saw an actor who was like probably getting some very loose direction in a lot Mm -hmm. of those moments and was just flailing like trying to like show us oh i'm going crazy but like his idea of going crazy was like ooh, it just like it 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 just oof like it it's was pretty me go crazy yeah, yeah yeah i mean to me like it it this film delivered on exactly what i was looking for in my interpretation of the prompt when you gave it to me was like i wanted an american actor lost at sea in an international co-production that was my goal you know and that is he does feel lost (laughs) i I think he is like totally unmoored and confused now on the other hand i would say that i actually failed the prompt because i think keanu reeves is perfectly at home playing buddha whether or not you think it, it works i actually came across this very fascinating piece on the j store called Uh, It's got a great title. Uh, Once the Buddha was born as Keanu Reeves, the shaping of Buddhism in American film and popular culture by Sharon A. Suh. And it's a reading of like Keanu's entire career through his relationship and association with Buddhism, including his public persona as a nice guy and a guy that gives back. Uh, But there's also, of course, like Neo is a sort of you know, Siddhartha type figure who has this great awakening. Bill and Ted are these, it's like the Socratic step, you know, like all I know is that I know nothing. And then he's got to, you know, go through all these steps in his career. And even John Wick is like the mythology of him. Um, in that sense. So on and so forth. In that sense, sure. Because I, <laughs> I, from my understanding, he he was or is a practitioner of. He is, yeah. Of Buddhism or Eastern? He was not at the time. He was not at the time. So this film might have then been a big uh, turning point for him. Do you have any insight into that? I mean, yeah, because I did just want to ask that, Marsh. Like, why? Like, why is he in it? 
I will tell you exactly why he's in it. Yeah, okay. There, there is a fantastic piece from when this movie came out in the Washington Post called Little Buddha, Big Ego. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the ego, of course, Bertolu- Bertolucci's, you know. Um, and he says, so this is, this is what he says. He's heard all the jokes about the casting of Reeves, and Bertolucci anticipates the question by diving right into an explanation. I was really desperate, he says bluntly. I couldn't find any Indian actors. I saw tapes of hundreds. I had a casting director looking for two months. Bertolucci wanted a Prince Siddhartha who looked like a young Satyajit Ray, the legendary Indian director, he says. But these days in India, actors model themselves on Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Macho, yes, not right at all, Bertolucci says. But then I read somewhere that Keanu Reeves is half Western, half Chinese and Hawaiian. So I met him and decided in three minutes. How? He emanates such innocence, it shines on his face. Also, Indian illustrations and Indian epic movies, pop art, the things you see on the walls of the tobacconist of Vishnu and Krishna, they are all like Keanu. He has a kind of beauty that's not Eastern or Western. You're not sure what it is, except pure kitsch. (laughs) Yeah, well, very, 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 very (laughs) illuminating then from from Bertolucci. But to be fair... (laughs) You know, Marsh, I mean, you're, 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 you're saying like, you know, you, you failed, but like, again, to be fair, I mean, Keanu hadn't done anything like this to this point in his career. So certainly for people who knew him from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the idea of being in a Bernardo Bertolucci epic in which he's going to play, you know, fucking Siddhartha himself does seem like I mean, it's quite a leap. leap but you know? he had been in he had been in my own private Idaho and he had been in Dracula. I think those are like weird art house movies, but not who you know, a lot of people saw Dracula. Not a lot of people saw my own private Idaho. But yeah. I think like it is interesting to look back and go that like he was dipping into very interesting stuff. because uh, this film even came in between point break and speed. It's like in between point break and speed, he's like, oh, the little boot. Yeah. You know, like it's an interesting choice, <laughs> a very interesting choice. And, you know, for what it's worth, and I think Keanu does a pretty decent job at what he's yeah. supposed to do, which is again, he's blissed out. Some of the line deliveries are rough. And like, there's a couple where you're like, oh, that's like a Bill and Ted line reading. Come and eat with me. You have betrayed your vows, Siddhartha. You have given up the search. We can no longer follow you. We can no longer learn from you. To learn is to change. The path to enlightenment is in the middle way. It is the line between all opposite extremes. But like, most of the time, yeah, I think he does have the temperament and the look, you know, that uh, that works for what Bertolucci's trying to do. Maybe it's Orientalism, but, you know. I mean, it's definitely I Orientalism. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely that, you know. I had, a, like, a fundamental misunderstanding of what this movie even was going in, which was pretty funny because I was like trying to defend like where it was headed with Molly because we're sitting there and I'm like, yeah, I think the idea like what when they the 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 Tibetan monks pick out the boy 
and saying he's the reincarnation. I'm like, okay, yeah. So then it must just like flash forward and he grows up to be Keanu Reeves. And then I was like, oh, it's weird that they cast like a little blonde boy to be Keanu Reeves. And then we go to the past. And I'm like, oh, maybe the idea is that like we see Keanu in the past. And then when this kid gets older and turns into Keanu. And then I was like, oh, no, this is just like Keanu is Siddhartha full on this whole movie. Yeah. I was like, ah, this kind of sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it was really it was it was really distracting. It was driving me nuts. Like it was just, I don't know. He gives it his all. Um, but it yeah, it left a sour taste in my mouth. It's like these these sequences are so beautiful. It's such a curious film, but like, but yeah, I I had a hard time with like his presence in, in the movie. I think that both of these films, you could argue, like if they suffer. Uh, an affliction it's a certain uh lack of irony you know (laughs) in like both of these in both of these films you know in their approach to the material like you said with i come with the rain like they didn't go far enough if you wanted this to be this sort of like mythological archetypal approach like you needed to be a lot more cartoonish you needed to be a lot more you know you, you needed to put touch touchstones to a lot of the cinematic sort of references that you're sort of playing with and, and make them, I think a lot more, you know, recognizable other than just a sort of like hodgepodge of being like, yeah, he's a private investigator, right? That that's a big trope in, you know, movies and noir and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, yeah, but no one ever thinks of like, when you think classic private eye, you don't think Josh Hartnett, you know what I mean? Like if anything, Elias Koteas should have, you should have swapped roles if you wanted to be really daring, you know, have Josh Hartnett play the weird serial killer, uh, and, and have Elias Koteas losing his mind, who is an actor who's very good at losing his mind. Uh, we know that for a fact, he's a big method actor and, and basically on set, he's a, he's a crazy person from what mm. we've heard. But anyway, I wonder if he's eaten anybody. I mean, you, you wonder, you know, you wonder, but, but, you know, again, with with Little Buddha, it's like you can see Bernardo Bertolucci approaching this material so earnestly. And and it's just kind of like, yeah, but but look at this thing. It's ridiculous. It's like <laughs> this, this is a blonde kid and and uh, monks show up on the doorstep of their upper middle class Seattle home and are like, can we take your son and teach them all about Buddhism. And they're like, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, you know, I mean, good like, liberals, you know? oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. It's just, you know, so I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying, Ryan. And, and it's, again, I, I think that both of these movies, if they, if they suffer, it's like they suffer from, from, I guess, like the directors themselves, not really being in on the joke of what these movies kind of are. Well, I think there's another way to look at it. And that's, Sort of what, if I recall what we kind of talked about in that class I took on Bertolucci, that class specifically was like, it was called like the European dream and the films of Bernardo Bertolucci. So it was like, it was an excuse for this professor to talk about like the the grand failure of the left and where do you (laughs) go after that? And that was like actually what the class was about. It wasn't about like Bertolucci's techniques, you know, it was like, here's this like Marxist, let's watch his films. And in that 
post piece I already brought up, Bertolucci said something very illuminating that I think sort of explains this sincerity, right? Um, he is not a true Buddhist, he says, just an amateur, but he enjoys meditation, the ancient wisdom, the philosophy. With the collapse of socialism and the near death of the Freudians, Bertolucci says he finds solace in Buddhism. Uh, during the premiere in Paris, the Dalai Lama held Bertolucci's hand throughout the movie. His first time, His Holiness, had been in a movie theater and proclaimed it, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> but he then he follows it up saying, I found there was no contradiction between this religion and what I already believed in. It gives me another way to be allowed to have dreams. The dreams you are no longer allowed to have with socialism. Maybe I need a utopia. I like the idea of karma as well, because it's very much Freudian. You know, you are the own writer of your karma. You know, whatever. And like Freud and Jung were like, obviously did deep studies into uh, Buddha and shit that he was also drawing from. He also read Borges on Buddha. That was a big influence as well to him. So again, it's a guy who had a lot of hopes and dreams and finds himself in the 90s before the revolution, like the title of his early film, you know? It's like, mm -hmm. he, and again, so that was like sort of my joke at the beginning of like, is he just like a boomer sellout, you know? Like, <laughs> is this his end of history moment where he's just like, you know, the communism's dead, socialism's dead. Um, and it's certainly at that point right to proclaim it so, you know? And it's like, he's just retreating into a, a fantasy utopia, well, you know? And, and again, he wasn't alone. I mean, the nineties were a, a, a time when like Buddhism and Eastern philosophy and religion like became a big fad and a big trend in Western culture, yes. in America, in Europe. And I think as this sort of like reaction to the eighties for, again, like you said, a lot of these sort of like failed boomers and Gen Xers who were sort of looking back at the eighties and being like, Ooh, that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. I need to simplify my thinking on life. You know, I shouldn't be so materialistic, you know, I should reject a lot of that stuff. But again, it's like, you can also sort of level the criticism that it's like within the central characters, like they really do represent that unironically. Yeah. This, these people in this fucking glass house overlooking Seattle. I mean, let's be honest, right? How much does that fucking house Oh my God, cost? $10 million, if not more. I couldn't get over that. I'm like, what is this Easy. like Beverly Hills home in North Seattle? Well, he was this? the architect. No, I know. I know. I'm just saying like imagining <laughs> yeah. like, God, yeah. like it's, it's, it's nuts. Yeah, no, that house has to cost so much fucking money. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. and he has his spiritual awakening. Right. Know? And that's the thing though, right? Cause it's, it's easy for someone. And I don't want to, again, I'm not trying to like uh, necessarily like completely attack the film, but just building off of ideas that you brought up. Right. Again, it's like, why did this, why was this like a very popular trend, especially amongst even like, there were a whole bunch of Hollywood celebrities, you know, that yeah. came out and it was the era of free Tibet and, you know, people like Richard Gere becoming very like big proponents of this in, in the press and, yeah. and that sort of thing. And again, it's like, it's very easy when you have millions of dollars to suddenly kind of romanticize the idea of, of letting it go of uh, how trivial mm -hmm. it all is, you know, or to simply like, 
jump on a plane and fly to Bhutan and have your spiritual awakening in such a beautiful place, you know? It was really funny. Uh, this week was a real chore at work where I had to move a bunch of stuff out of an office into a new office. And I was doing a lot of back and forth trips between like the international district in Seattle through downtown up, up a bit North. And when I was fatigued and in the car with one of my coworkers and when I'm driving, I'm frustrated and I look out the window and I see the building that Evan makes in yeah. little Buddha. And I'm looking and I'm like, you see that building up there? <laughs> no one wanted to rent that building, wanted an office space in there. And the architect ended up killing himself. Do you know that? <laughs> and I'm like, it's a lesson to just let all this go. <laughs> yep. To learn is to change. Cut away. Grow, got, just got to cut away. But it was, yeah, it was very funny. <laughs> I was like, I was on the lookout because I was like, well, I, I didn't remember that building when they featured in the movie, they spent some time looking at it, pointing at the dome ceiling. And I was like, where is that thing? I should have looked up what it is, uh, but I did see it yesterday, which was very funny. Uh, good good to pass through. But that guy's got like the best view you can get. It's funny how you said that you're like, man, Bertolucci hates Seattle <laughs> based on the way he shoots it. And it, I was thinking back to our Seattle episode when we did McHugh and Police Beat, of course. Um how this time around now having been here since then i just obviously recognize everything so much more it's so much more vivid um and like there were shots of the highway where i'd be like oh that's where i do like my trick on the highway where i i cross over and i skip lanes and it gets me there a lot faster but i will say i it it yeah it feels as though he's really disparaging of the city when it's like just a single color palette it's blue and then we go to to Kathmandu and it's just technicolor it's the most colorful shit you've ever seen in your lives it just makes it feel bluer and bluer and bluer but I did I was like he captured the city pretty well I really like at the end when they are like out on the boat in the sound and they waited until they had uh, a bluebird day where there it was clearly winter because the Olympic range is is all snowy but there was uh, there were no clouds in the sky and it was funny throughout the whole film you couldn't see much of the mountain ranges and when they're out on the boat there's this camera pan and i was like oh i think we're gonna see rainier finally because you never see mount rainier in the movie and you do in that camera pan which was nice but it i think you know i think there was some care it feels very nice i think he did a good job shooting seattle i was impressed it was more there was more location stuff than i was expecting let me rephrase my statement bertolucci doesn't hate seattle he thinks like the modern city, maybe the modern American city is like devoid of spirituality. I mean, I 100%. think that's more what he's playing with than like being like Seattle sucks. It's more like, look at this like soulless place. Yeah, it's cold. I mean, and, you know? and he got it right. I, st <laughs> I stand by that. Like, I agree with Berlucci there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The town that Microsoft built, you know, yeah. I mean, uh -huh. like, that's what it is. It's, you know, this late 20th century American city. What you know? These are our values, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I had no idea that the movie was. I, I had no idea that Little yeah. Buddha was like so prominently featuring Seattle. It was Seattle so funny, classic. man. 
the the opening when like we first arrive in Seattle and I was like, oh shit. And then there's like the vision of like where the boy was born and that house materializes the CGI of like a house just like sprouting out of thin air. Extremely funny for a movie that I yeah, I take that way. The movie's got a lot of goofy moments like that with like some some I mean, cause like, man, at the end when Keanu is fighting that demon, it yeah. feels like uh it's like you're in a crystal shop. <laughs> I read an interesting thing that Bertolucci, who had like sworn off special effects in the early 80s, uh, in 1990, he was one of many handpicked directors to do a spot for the World Cup that was in Italy. And Whoa. they got all the auteurs to do their own regents. So like Antonioni, Vertmuller, uh, everyone uh, does a little like commercial for the region or the city. Uh, and he'd used a ton of special effects for it. And that's when he like got into special effects was in like 89, 90. Cause he'd never really like used them before. Wow. Maybe wow. a little on sheltering sky. So, uh, very funny. And I found out someone linked me on Twitter. Uh, they're on YouTube, like a whole playlist mm. of these like auteur world cup commercials. And I haven't watched them yet. Oh, send you guys the link. Sick, dude. Hell yeah. Wow. <clears throat> I did love the like central conflict pretty early in the film, like after the monks show up and they're like just trying to be polite and like humoring some of their conversations that the film does like pivot <laughs> where it's they're like, we may lose the house if he's not able to rent any of these these offices in this like downtown building he built. And then Evan kills himself. And it's like I was waiting for them to say like, all right, well, do we sell the kid to the monks so we can keep affording this home? <laughs> Pull up stakes and move to Bhutan. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, doesn't seem that yeah. bad. I, I know. Honestly, I was sort of like, I'm in, you know, because yeah. again, there were, you know, it's like Ebert's point. A lot of people at the time were just like, what is this family doing? Like, why are they so open to it? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, I would live in Bhutan, you know, again. Like, give it a shot. The opportunity you just won, presented You just itself, won the yeah. llama lottery, dude. Like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Think about how fucking miserable and boring most people's lives are. I say, embrace it. You Man, know? I hope I win the llama lottery one day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I felt the same thing while I was watching it. You know, and I, I think, again, though, it... it <laughs> It has more to do in that sense with the performances of the parents. And no offense to Bridget Fonda, because I like Bridget Fonda a lot, and I think she's a very talented actress. Um, but, you know, we were sort of discussing prior to the pod, the, uh, the again, you want to talk about uh, outside of your comfort zone at this point, uh, Chris Isaac had a lot to learn, I think, about about acting and uh, doesn't really help sort of like sell that internal conflict of being a parent and a non-believer faced with something very unbelievable. You know, he just kind of has this oh shucks, ho-hum demeanor when really we're supposed to be seeing like his spiritual crisis as well, like reflected, but more often than not, he just is sort of like almost a, a, a straight man. And in that sense, it just is sort of like meant to make, I guess what the monks are saying seem ridiculous, but it doesn't seem ridiculous. And he's not really reacting to it in any way other than just kind of being like, 
Well, you know, I don't believe in reincarnation, right? But, you know, there's no struggle. You don't really see that kind of struggle that is then meant to, to be overcome by his actual journey to Bhutan and this very kind of like eye-opening experience of being around so many believers and 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 a sort of like apex of spiritual sort of you know transcendence that sort of thing and even like Bridget Fonda I mean like she just basically is just like standing around staring outside of her again you know <laughs> yeah. very scenic well, it's the middle of the semester she can't yeah, yeah. And I, I'm saying like, there's just not a whole lot going on there with them that could, I think, add to this feeling of like, man, this is this is crazy, right? Like, they don't seem that troubled, even though they will say they're troubled. So, well, if you want to spice it up a little bit, I learned a disturbing detail about uh, Soyal Rinpoche, Rinpoche, I don't know how to say that. He plays Kenpo at the beginning, the glasses guy who first approaches her. Uh That guy, in real life, got mega canceled in the 2010s for decades of like catholic church style abuse Uh, and he is like so funny and jolly in this movie and a great like icebreaker with with bridget fonda Ooh, adds a real now dark i know dark tint to the scene at the the playground where he's just kind of like lurking by the chain link fence he got a lot of skeletons and like lots and lots of people accused him oh no no. he's dead now you know but (laughs) well good Yes. <laughs> what we take from that? There's another crazy thing too in terms of like the international cast that I found out. The guy that plays Lama Norbu, uh, Ying Rocheng, is Chinese, and he was the CCP's Minister of Culture in the 1980s. And I was also thinking, like, isn't this like fraught politically that a CCP official is like yeah. in a in a monk movie, but like, I guess Bertolucci made it happen. You know, I don't know what's up with that, but no allegations on that guy. So. Wow. No, I was. And <laughs> <laughs> when I was, when I was like wrestling with this movie and trying to spin some alternate reads to make the stuff I struggled with a little more palatable. I do think like there is a way, I don't think Bertolucci was thinking about this, but like you could be generous where it's like the boy, the Seattle boy, because whenever we are seeing Siddhartha, it's whenever the Seattle boy is reading a children's book about Buddha. And there's almost something where it's like thinking about this kid's imagination where like a white, a little white boy reading the story of Buddha, like his his limited imagination of like, who is this hero of the story? Like he could only imagine, like that was as far as he could go, like someone like Keanu Reeves in, in his mind's eye. Yeah. Um, and that also like kind of, you know, it is like th- those sequences are very colorful and gentle, like a children's picture book narrative. But to that end, you know, that was also one of my um, reflections on the film, especially in a more like modern lens, even than when this film came out. Mm-hmm. And again, thinking about this family and the wealth. And if if you if you had the family again living in the same situation today in Seattle, they would have to be, I mean, 
fuck you wealthy to live in specifically even that house. Yeah. And the idea as we see through Siddhartha's like journey was that he was this boy, this prince born into wealth who was sheltered from it all. And I was thinking about the same thing in Seattle, right? And the idea of this boy living in this glass house up on a hill, sheltered from the suffering of so many people left behind by Seattle's, you know, ascent into one of the 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 most, you know, mm-hmm. uh, economically troubled metro- metropolises in, in the world. A housing but, market like Hong Kong. Right, right, yeah. right. But, you know, it's like, we don't again if you're sort of like having this boy's journey and your 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 attempt is to sort of link it to Siddhartha's journey of discovery and understanding like there was none of that in the film and maybe that's also because Seattle wasn't nearly as 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 bad as it is today but i just kept like reflecting on that and just being like well where was the moment where this boy left his house and saw all the fucking homeless camps you know in seattle and 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 these homeless camps sort of like underneath yeah these multi-million dollar like tech homes and obviously again different time different film but it's like i think that's what also makes the film feel challenging today to watch it and to see Seattle and to see this child and to see Mm -hmm. this family and to see their journey and to see none of that sort of suffering that was central to Siddhartha's awakening of, as we see in the film, his journey, you know, of, of going off on that, that sojourn that was very well arranged by his father. The Potemkin village. Yeah, yeah, that, that you know, he peeked through, you know, he saw through that. Who are those men? Tell me, who are those men? They are men like the rest of us, my lord, who once sucked milk from their mother's breast. And why do they look like that? They are old, my lord. What do you mean, old? Old age destroys memory, beauty, and strength. In the end, he happens to us all, my lord. To everyone? To you and to me? It is better not to concern yourself with these things, my lord. But where are they taking them? Shut up! No, my lord. Don't go there, please. You mustn't. No, my lord. The child, the the contemporary child, like never has that moment. He just has this this wonderful sort of existence. Maybe there's a little bit of that in Bhutan when he goes there, but he just seems more like, wow, this is cool. I'm out of Seattle rather than like witnessing like horrible human suffering. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, we're not sheltered from that horrible human suffering with the potential of a spiritual awakening in I Come With the Rain, Mm-mm. where there is the Christ-like figure thread of Chateau. And I just I just need to ask, you know, like, could you guys make heads or tails over what was going on? What, was it just totally enigmatic that he was just providing some sort of healing? Because we, we keep cutting back to him in his shack with these people and they're like covered in blood and it seems like he's performing an exorcism. But I, I, when watching 
didn't well he's catch. like absorbing their suffering and their yeah. injuries and know? is it like i mean do they ever i mean there's so little dialogue in the movie they he's y- jesus yeah 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 i mean he's he is yes he's jesus but i hear what you're saying ryan and yes it is certainly befuddling because <laughs> there isn't this sense of like you know how these miracles are working there there's a certain physical element to it that is that is somewhat perplexing and confusing because just in describing the setup as you were right it's like yes he's 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 trying to to take away people's suffering or their sickness but then he's getting all these like wounds all over his body and it's like i i guess i was asking the wrong question is like were they do you think those people were just sick or do you think they were possessed oh that was my main bit of curiosity i don't think there's anything to show that they were possessed I was thinking that's why he was getting all eviscerated when he was like sucking out the evil and his eyes got all crazy. And I, uh, yeah, I thought well, it he was does, like he does get like mobbed by them too near the ending, uh, when it seems like he's going to close up shop and they're like, you can't, and they, right. they sort of like storm him. But, but look, I mean, again, it's like <laughs> trying to make hide or hair of this film is, is, yeah, it's 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 sort of like a fool's errand on a certain level because yeah. there's a lot of stuff that is ambiguous intentionally, but there's also a lot of stuff that's ambiguous, I believe, very unintentionally. That things got sort of lost in the sauce, lost in the the the, the edit, lost in the construction of the film. Uh, I couldn't imagine what this movie looked like on paper. I couldn't imagine what the actual screenplay looked like when you look at the final product. Like, I can't imagine that you would have written the film this way with all of the jumps in time and space and and as a writer being able to sort of keep track of all that. Uh, because again, there are sequences to me that just felt very loose and improvisational in that it was like, hey, let's get a camera and this space and and let's just have people kind of lose themselves whether in that hut or yeah josh hartnett doing his invest quote i'm gonna put that in quotation marks investigation because he's not really investigating a lot other than i guess yeah as you described marsh himself or his previous relationship with Elias kateas but <laughs> he just seems to drop the ball for a very long period of time in the film and, and we as an audience, I sort of, sort of pay the price for it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, both films are about suffering and death and resurrection in a way, you know, I think I noted in I Come With The Rain that everyone has a sort of like death and resurrection narrative, whether mm-hmm. it's Klein, right, from his, the, the insanity of trying to catch Elias Coteus, and we see flashbacks to that. Uh, Shitao's resurrection when he's murdered by Filipino uh, warlords or farmers or whatever was going on uh, in that sequence uh, or him like nursing Lily uh, back to health the you know the gangsters mall uh, so on and so forth but really yeah no it, it is all just like muddled nonsense uh, I, I like mean, the car chase <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> It'll the do. Car <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's because it was just a straight line. It was the most coherent thing. Yeah. In the film. There was a lot of yeah, good good use of space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's just so many things that like don't, like for me, I just kept being like, what is happening right now? Like, you have the whole subplot with his buddy. I. I guess his buddy who's this Hong Kong cop. And then we have this like weird sequence where he's like doing like sexy gun stuff with some chick. Nine millimeter. Parabellum. Comes off the barrel at over 300 meters per second. That's a good bullet. Can I hold it? who I didn't understand like who she was what her purpose was you know and and then somebody just walks in and shoots him and I was like who's this guy was he with the gangsters I think he was with the gangsters but I don't know was it because of her or something else Uh, and then there's this moment where like he just is sort of like letting Josh Hartnett in on a murder investigation where they're on an active crime scene. But then in the middle of this crime scene, they just kind of have like a water fight with a couple of bottles of water. Do you remember that? Where oh, they were just throwing yeah, bottles? That, was, that was weird. I was like, you just contaminated the crime scene by having a, like a water fight in the middle of this active investigation. <laughs> like, what is happening in this movie? People were just being so weird. And I know that was the point. It's like everyone's weird. These are all aliens. Everybody's meant to be weird, but like, man, a a typical sequence in this film that I actually wrote down was this sort of like epic montage. And here are all the threads that are going on in this. We have the Hong Kong police department storming around the city, just showing pictures of, of, I guess, shaitan to random citizens. We cut, into that with Josh Hartnett, sweaty in his underwear, putting together a computer. Oh, when he gets the HP package yeah, and he's unloads got the, the printer, he's I got was the full desktop dude. he's putting together, dude. He's got the laser printer he's setting up and he's just sweating <laughs> profusely in his underwear. Then we're cutting to Shaitan dumping buckets of water onto, I guess, this drug addict. Yeah girl of the gangster and then we're cutting to the gangster who is uh talking to an old man then shooting his dog and then beating him profusely with the dog's carcass while at the end the camera then pans up to a cityscape like skyline that ends up looking like a big cross that's like five minutes of what this movie is going to feel like and like yeah it's crazy it's audacious but like what the hell are you following this my god i had so much trouble yeah it's (laughs) funny like sort of similar to little buddha not really making some of those like seattle connections you're talking about andy or the connection to the buddha story I felt the same thing where we're introduced that like his client is this like, like far- Howard Hughes. Yeah. This like pharmaceutical giant who will only like interact with people, you know, through video. And he's not even like on video. He's just like looking- a disembodied voice. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of sort of rhetoric about contamination throughout the movie that like added up to nothing. And I, I thought, you know, maybe there's something in the fact that 
the son of this guy is this like Jesus figure who goes to the Philippines to like save children and then becomes resurrected as Jesus and goes to Japan or goes to Hong Kong. But then it's like that whole thread never comes back with the client. Like he's never here. He just is like, I have a, like a credit card that's unlimited. And then it's like, (laughs) uh, you know, there's no further back and forth with the client. Like the, the story of Shitao doesn't even like connect back to that necessarily. And I'm just going like, again, what, what is set up here is never really like paid off in any way. Again, because it's just like, there's just too much stuff in here. It's like, you got to get rid of like at least two subplots in order to tie those those things together in a way that is like coherent in a way that like gives us something to be like like holding on you know and that's what i meant by this feeling like fucking like work getting through this film because there was nothing there was no reward for like actually fucking paying attention to this movie there was no. nothing you know that that like you were like ah oh, here it comes especially when you're using the archetype of like a private eye and investigation, because again, if we go back to this idea of like this grand mythic idea of the private investigator in cinema and narratives, it would be that by the end of the film, we would come to realize that that disembodied voice, he was behind this whole thing. He was the, he was the worst of them all. The guy who hired the investigator and the investigation would lead back there too. Yes. Oh my God. All this contamination all over and blah, blah, blah. He wants to find his son because he wants to rub him out or so, but no, like he said, it's just, that's it. Like some guys like find my son and he's like, okay. And then he just gets onto a rooftop with binoculars at a certain point and starts (laughs) scanning all of Hong Kong to try to find this guy. And then guess what? In one of the most populous compressed cities in the fucking world, he does spot him from the rooftop in the binoculars. Oh my God, dude. It's like they were making it up as they went along at times. Well, you know, I I did see it like a little, I found on YouTube, like a, blu-ray extra from like a foreign release and it's heartening being interviewed uh at the time and he's like yeah hung showed me like lots of francis bacon paintings you know and i'm like yeah no shit you know yeah but wow no, that's no, funny there was a script but you know yeah it seems as though the design of it all was just to think that those signifiers and those archetypes were enough that if you could just take all these things you'd be familiar with, the private eye, the Jesus figure, the criminal syndicate boss, his girlfriend, like all of those pieces themselves are loaded. And the film seems to presume that like, well, if we just take all these things, mix them up, play with the visuals, that's enough. But it's not. And that's why it does, I think, all fall apart at the end, like exactly what you were saying, Andy. Like there should have been some sort of reveal that the the disembodied voice was the architect of so much of what was going on. Instead, nothing really coalesces because it's just simply gestures. It's just signifiers. And we're just supposed to treat those as these things that are inherently loaded and it feels as though we're looking at a painting instead of something that's aesthetically cohesive. You know, to me, I think it's a failure even of Baroque painting yeah. because of that. You know who I couldn't help but think about a lot when I was watching this film was Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah. Uh, you know, I noted that at a certain point. Yeah. And, and obviously there's like, I think very direct similarities to a film Refn would make later. Only God forgives uh, a very similar sort of vibe structure region of the world that they're in and that sort of thing. 
But why I think in like only God forgives or Refn like kind of gets away with it is because Refn like he pulls so much out to the point where it is just the image, right? In 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 the case of only God forgives, right? It is just images. It is just gestures. Like this, like I think Marsh, you put it very well. It like just gets caught in a no man's land between like trying to be a story and trying to be a series of images and sounds. And again, it's like, yeah, wow, cool visuals, great cinematography. I loved the look of it. I love all that music, but it's like, but then you're, you're trying to put like heart and emotion into it. And like Refn would never put heart or emotion into one of his fucking things. Right. It is just like people from, from cinema. It is just people from another planet in, in his movies. Like there was just enough, like there was just enough like humanity in this film to just like leave it very like limp and lukewarm to me. Not entirely cold, but just like room temperature, you know, like reference cold. This was just like room temperature in spite of the fact that like, God, Josh Hartnett was so sweaty in this movie. Yeah, he sweats through like both a button up pink shirt and then also like a pink golf T-shirt. Yeah, um, yeah. which I thought was funny. He was wet. Yeah, they were definitely filming in like the Hong Kong summer for sure because he is. Yeah, I mean, it is unfortunate. I don't know, maybe if it's just like bad timing on the film's part, but like. Yeah, the the serial killer as artist thing is like sort of the what the film thinks the big reveal is like the the flashback to Hasford Elias Coteus's like layer of of flesh sculptures. This is my design. Yeah, and it's just like in a post Hannibal world, you know, I just can't, you know, it's just like nothing, you know. I don't know, and maybe that's unfair, but there's also other films of treated you know a similar concept and i think yeah it's just not a shocking reveal it's just like and all right and again like what it hints at is a much more interesting character and story that is meant to just be a fucking like like bookend for everything in the middle. I mean, like, yeah, I don't give a shit about this Hong Kong gangster who's hung up over his drug addicted girlfriend. Like it's not interesting at all, but like Elias Koteas, like, wow, there's, there's something there, but it's really just meant to like justify why Josh Hartnett goes on this journey that again, leads nowhere. Yeah. Because this would also be a much better double feature if it was about Elias Coteas, because he has like a, a similar philosophy to Siddhartha and Buddha, but like evil, right? Because his whole thing is that like the suffering of mankind, marvel of the universe, is is there anything? more beautiful on this earth and that's like where he's coming from as a murderer flesh artist you know and it's just like a perverted interpretation of uh siddhartha going like the suffering like we need to solve this not turn it into art you know but it's different solutions to the to the same problem the problem of suffering yes i'm i'm very much with you there on that i think that's a great way of putting it Goofy ass movie, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I mean, but I'm thinking about then the journey that they do take leaving Seattle and and flying across the world to Bhutan. And man, I I'm just thinking about like how it was already so strange that the parents were like so openly humoring the idea of like having their kid, you know, maybe be the the reincarnation of the llama and be like, yeah, let's send them out. But it was like, I guess it tracks then with what their parenting style. It wasn't it nuts like when they arrive and they're like, yeah, just let the kid like roam around the streets yeah. of this city. Like he'll find us. Like we'll just meet at a coffee shop. See you in 30 minutes, boy. I was like, oh, fucking God. Well, it's not like America over there, you know. Mm. There's probably like zero murders a year in Bhutan. <laughs> you know? Like the like, idea yeah. of just letting a kid loose in any city in the world. I mean, world. he's not in Hong Kong. He's in like sure. a Dalai Lama stronghold. You know? <laughs> I, 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 I hear both of you. Like, trust me, I, I had the same reflection because this is also kind of like the pre-cell phone era. So, you know, it would have right. been kind of hard to, to find him if he got lost. But then again, this kid was like a celebrity. And I'm sure somebody would have been like, look, the the one blonde boy. Yeah, I'm he assuming sticks is out. With, uh, the big tall white guy is walking around with a camera. So there's also the <laughs> fact, of course, that he is uh, the reincarnated llama. Yeah. So he knows his way around, really. That's yeah. true. That's yeah. true. Yeah, with his fanny pack and his uh, his fanny pack storing his Game Boy and yeah. his athletics hat, which was very funny to me because the one season of baseball I played. As a boy, my team was the Athletics, and we lost uh, every game except the first one, I think. Yeah. I remember the coach, the coach congratulated me at the end of the season because even though we lost every game, he's like, well, Ryan was always smiling. So even when we were all down in the dumps, at least Ryan had a smile on his face. And I was like, well, thank you, coach. Hey, a lot of guys have made good careers in, in the major leagues by just being a good clubhouse presence. You know, yeah. they might bat 220, <laughs> but like, hey, it's good for the team overall that he's here. You know? I was not a good clubhouse presence. You're, you're, a, lot, you're a lot more hot-blooded than Ryan is, that's for yeah. sure. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Not like me. I actually got in trouble in my first Bensonville Basketball Association game because we lost. And on the, the team handshake, I spit in my hand when we did oh, the, the hand. Oh, no. dude, I got I got a very stern talking. That was my first. I was very young. It was my first lesson in sportsmanship. And and my dad, uh, I've my dad has never been as disappointed with me as he was in that moment. And, and I will say this, I never did it again. I never did it again. I was a very poor sport. You know, I was like, I was like the Ron Artest of the yeah. Bensonville basketball association. That checks out. Yeah. Marsh, you saying that, you know, he would find his way around cause he is the, the reincarnation of the llama. I was disappointed that I felt it was a cop out at the end when all three candidates turn out to be the llama. Yeah. I was really holding out for Raju. I yeah. wanted Raju oh, to win yeah. like next top llama. Yeah. I mean, he's the crowd favorite. No yeah. doubt. About well, he's it. the body, you know? Yeah. 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 But it is again, I think it, <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying. Cause it does like, it, it's, it's so weird. Right. Cause it does suddenly at the end where it's like, okay, we're building the climax of this film. Like, what are we, what are we supposed to do here? You know, like, <laughs> so they introduce this kind of thread of, well, there's three possible candidates and we get 
what amounts to slight tension in the film where we're wondering like who is going to be a knight, you know, anointed the the actual yeah. like title of of reincarnated, you know, uh lama. Uh but it takes a very eastern philosophy approach to it, you know. This isn't the western obsession with winners and losers. We can all win. We can all, in our own ways, like be a part of this. And I, I think it's like a very touching thing, you know, and a very, I think, a bold choice for this film. And it might also explain why it is not a very well remembered or respected film, certainly, especially amongst probably a lot of Americans, because it's like, what the hell is this movie? Like this, 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 there's no point to this movie existing, but again, it's, it's, it's rooted in that philosophy and that tradition, which isn't about like dominating other people. It isn't about the little blonde kid, like winning a million dollars because he becomes the llama and everybody else losing. <laughs> no, it's mostly like learning about the impermanence of all things. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. At the end, it's kind of like, well, what does it even matter? We're all going to fucking die anyway. I mean, that's the more like European existentialist take, but yeah. Bertolucci's pushing away from that in his older age here. You yeah. know, it's true. The, the imagery and the climax of the Buddha thread is great though. I love those women dissolving into leaves oh, during yeah. the storm. That looked really cool. Well, it's cool too because they bring the kids into yeah. the Buddha world. So like it's nice. I thought that like you get the collapse of the narratives into like a single image, you know. Now I just I suddenly I'm like I'm 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 fucked up because I'm like this is the same guy who made the conformist. Yeah. <laughs> this is the now I'm really reflecting on that difference, right? Think about the conclusion of the conformist, right? The point that that makes that we're all losers. <laughs> and then by this point in his career, he's like, we all win. Everybody wins, you know? Like we all are winners. It's so funny that journey. Now I'm fucking thinking about it. Like, holy shit. What a condemnation of humanity in The Conformist. And now what a total celebration of it yeah. here in the early 90s. Strange. He just loves the, the international co-production spirit, I guess. We all co-produce. I mean, this film, it, it's interesting now. I, this is the first time I had seen it, but I have seen the other ones in that trilogy. And they all blur together in my mind. I feel like Last Emperor, this, and Sheltering Sky do feel like one really weird movie to me. The aesthetic feels extremely similar. The way everybody speaks feels very similar. Just this, like weird kids, weird adults. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Sakamoto on all those yeah. soundtracks too. So And Peplo on all the scripts. Yeah. Storaro shooting. I wonder them what all. Rulitzer wrote. Dude, I didn't find an answer dude, to that. That's what I was thinking. I was like, what the fuck did Rudy have to do with this? You know? Maybe he touched up the Seattle parts. Yeah. He's like, have the kid want to take him on the monorail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah ryan uh i don't know if you saw jay rose capsule but he says no. you know the cast isn't all it might have been but bertolucci's celebrated burnt orange and burnished lemon look remains handsome <laughs> that is very true. oh that's awesome he also ends with an amazing uh classic jay rose backhand says uh 
Too bad that Miramax just decreed about 15 minutes be cut from the original version, which is shown overseas. Apparently a snappier kind of Buddhism is required here. (laughs) (laughs) I will say when I like checked the runtime and saw there were 37 minutes left, I was like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Look, uh, there is there is that the film resolves way too early. Uh, and no offense to like Lamu Norba or whatever, but like his death is like 15 minutes. And it's like after the film has concluded, there's a lot after like we get the three Rama resolution, you know, and yeah. then there's like 30 minutes left. Yeah. And so you can imagine, you know, here you are, you're sympathizing with Harvey, you know, and uh, you hate to see it. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be cut, you know. I but. wonder what Harvey would have done with I Come With The Rain. A little oh, long-winded man. too. He would have fucking buried it, dude. He would have shown <laughs> that shit, you know. It was like I he would saw have ordered it. reshoots, and there would have been like a lot more like nudity. I saw it was like a huge financial disaster. Mm. Doesn't, doesn't surprise, surprise me at all. Me. Yeah. Yeah. I have like <laughs> one. Yeah, I mean, it, it is crazy though because he is a, he is a filmmaker of a pretty large stature. And yes. I, mm-hmm. correct yes. me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but this was his return after like nine years. He yeah. didn't make anything, yeah. uh, and then he came back with this. Like, yeah, yeah it was a, it was a decade, and and mm. this was like his his comeback. Uh, well, and yeah. I haven't seen Cyclo, but like. Yeah, I have like one mutual that's seen this movie, and they loved it. But like, no, that's it. One, you know, it's like well, that's why I've had I've had this movie on my plex for like four years. Because at some point, I saw it, and I was like, a neo noir in China with Josh Hartnett. Like, obviously, I'm nabbing this, you know. And yeah. they just sat there, and me being like, what <laughs> is this for years? And like, yeah, there, there, you know, there is a reason. It's like completely for. <laughs> Forgotten the impermanence of all things, yeah. you know. <laughs> like, Andy, do you have any uh, m- memorable m- films of actors abroad? Yeah, you know, this is another funny week in that, um, this has happened to us before where like I feel like the person who comes up with the topic is like so, so, so assured of it, and then upon reflection, goes, Man. I, I, I like nothing is immediate, nothing immediately like jumps to mind, but taking a cue from the films that you picked, I still think like the idea of, of an actor, like getting outside of their comfort zone, like going abroad, as you put it, uh, I, I have to say, I think one of my favorite performances in that sense is Jack Palance in Godard's Contempt. Now, not a huge stretch necessarily for the kind of character Jack Palance could play, but I feel like there's something going on there in that film that Jack Palance is doing when he's a part of the film that that seems to be at odds with Yeah, I think it's hating Godard. Yes, it is it is like this this visceral like fucking hatred and anger of being a part of this weird production outside of Hollywood with this weird French director, the scene in which he's like going over the dailies, you know, with, with Otto and, uh, and and, Fritz. Yeah. Or Fritz, right. It's Fritz. God, I always get that mixed up. I'm always like, it's Otto Preminger. Anyway, the scene in which they're going over the dailies and he's like taking the, the reels and he's like throwing them against the wall. Like 
that is real like frustration and anger and not with the dailies he just watched, but with the film that he's taking part in. And, you know, I think like in that sense, Godard throughout his career had a few of those, you know, of actors sort of like showing up and being like, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, famously, like even a French actor, Depardieu felt all at sea in an La Pomoi and like, abandoned the production because he was so like uncomfortable with what was going on. I mean, I think that's like so awesome because these actors probably like pitched by whoever their agents or producers. And it's like, you'll get to work with the genius Godard, but they don't tell him that like he makes amateur films like on an amateur budget. Oh my (laughs) God. There's no, there's no comforts really like on those sets. Look at King Lear. I mean, what a fucking shit show, dude. Norman Mailer, fucking Woody Allen coming in to like bail him out or whatever. I mean, what a mess dude. Like, but I find it so fascinating. Well, uh, next week, there will be no new episode. Yes. But there will be right. a mixtape, Gauntlet Movie Mixtape Volume 6, coming at you as we take a... New Year's break. Yeah, a little short New Year's break. But we'll be back in two weeks with Ryan's topic. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say it or just keep, yeah. it, keep it like a secret? No, I got it. <laughs> I had a few different ideas, but it really became clear for me what I wanted the next topic to be while watching Little Buddha. And it's very funny hearing your story, Marsh, about how Bertolucci came to cast Keanu Reeves. Because I'm watching this movie thinking like, okay, I'm looking up the stats. I'm like, just under a billion people uh that could have played that role instead of keanu well not necessarily but they're no you know, they had like, to well, have I, uh, name recognition in the global international right, film right. marketplace no, i know i know <laughs> but it's just like i'm thinking about like man so that's yeah good. like it's it, not fair. yeah no for yeah for the film you know i, I was a little bummed out <laughs> while watching it i'm like hey you couldn't find anybody bernardo really they all are buff really so anyways i was thinking about that and then i was thinking about like well let's uh Let's head on over there. Let's get a little more authentic and spend some time with some parallel cinema. I don't necessarily have... Uh, I got a couple of busy weeks ahead, so I don't have time to watch... Um, do a Bollywood week, per se. But I figured, let's... Um, let's ex- We've done it before a little bit. Let's just dive straight into it. Let's watch some parallel cinema. Doesn't matter, like, what decade it is. Doesn't have to, like, officially be, you know, the 60s or 70s or anything like that. Um, just, like, you know, parallel to the Bollywood film industry Indian cinema can I pick a three hour <laughs> a three hour long <laughs> well, parallel yeah, cinema sure. film I mean that, that's okay it's allowed but I, I didn't want to like build in like and we're gonna have two 200 minute long films you know and maybe it'll shake out that way but that's well, all not all I the, know is I the, hope not the cloud cap star <laughs> is quite long it is long it is so yeah that's it alright as always you can follow us online on Twitter. You can listen to us on SoundCloud, Apple Music, Spotify, and other local podcast dealers. Please direct all of your complaints, compliments, uh, double feature requests, uh, salutations to Gauntlet Movie Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. 
Siddhartha won the battle against an army of demons just through the force of his love and the great compassion he had found. And he achieved the great calm that precedes detachment from emotions. He had reached beyond himself. He was beyond joy or pain, separate from judgment, able to remember that he had been a girl, a dolphin, a tree, a monkey. He remembered his first birth and the millions after that. He could see beyond the universe. Siddhartha had seen the ultimate reality of all things. He had understood that every movement in the universe is an effect provoked by a cause. He knew there was no salvation without compassion for every other being.